welcome. As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, we pray now that uh, as we can open up the book of this, this Bible, as we call it, we can open it up with our fingers, we can retrieve it on various devices that we have. Still, God, we need your grace and help to listen, to understand, and to believe. And so I pray for me, for us now, as we think through this passage of Scripture together, that you would be with us in such a way that, that we would understand it, that we would see the point, that we would believe. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, please. I want to begin reading with verse... Um, I better begin reading with verse 14 through the end of the chapter. It's a long reading, so hang in there. But as we say, it is the word of God, so we should listen. Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a, on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boats with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there, were, where there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole, the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising early in the, uh, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. 
And the leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, that's a long reading even for us. But I wanted to read it all. In fact, I even wanted to speak to it all if I can this morning because it has a recurring theme, really, and it's about the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus, uh, the right that Jesus has in people's lives, the rights that he has to command demons, the rights that he has over disease, and even this dreaded disease, leprosy. And what I didn't read, but I read a few minutes ago because I wanted to read it, and so I read it earlier. In chapter 2, the right to forgive sins. All of that, you see, is flashed before us. Now, authority, it's, it's important, the right to do something. It's, it's different from the related to power. You can, you can be powerful, have the ability to do something, but not the authority to do it. And, and there are times when you can have the authority to do something, but perhaps you don't have the power to do it. But, but Jesus had both the right to do it and the authority to do it. If you have the power to do it, but not the right, you could be frustrated uh, in your power. I, I, and, you know, for instance, this is a silly illustration, but uh, between 1976, 1967 and 1976, it was uh, not allowed to dunk a basketball in a college basketball game. That was frustrating for many of us. Some had the power, the ability, if you will, to do it, but not the right to do it. And then, then there's abuses of power. You have the power to do something, but not the right to do it, but you do it anyway. And we see abuses of power all the time throughout history. Power is taken, but there's no real authority to take it. It's possible to have authority, but no power. Legislatures are, are often reminded of this when they make a law, but they don't fund it well, or make a law and there's no personnel to, 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 to carry it out. And they, there's, a, there's authority to do something, but, but no ability really to carry, to carry it out. Jesus had both the power to do what he did, and he also had the right to do what he did uh, as well. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that he had, had authority. Uh, um, uh, he was prepared the way for him. Uh, as the Lord who was coming. And so when he was the Lord, certainly has authority, has the right to do, if you will. Um, even in his own baptism, his authority was affirmed by, by God the Father. He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He even announced authority by saying, coincidental with his coming, that the kingdom of God, the rule of God was near, the rule of God was at hand, the rule of God was here. And so, so he says, here I am, I, I, I do have this 
this authority. So we see this authority in the calling of his disciples, the authority over these men. We see it even as he, as he expelled or exercised this unclean spirit. We see his authority as he taught even. We see his authority as he healed and even healed this leper. We see his authority as he, as he forgave sin. So, so we look at this situation where Jesus calls these first uh, disciples, you know, Mark's gospel comes out as kind of as a PowerPoint with different slides just sort of popping up before us. You know, sort of with the title slide that this is the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That was the title slide, and then the slide of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus to come, and then then Jesus, his own baptism, is identified with with sinful sinners, if you will, and and the need for repentance is in that slide. Uh, there and, and the affirmation of, of Jesus, who he was by way of his father saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased and, and the very presence and power of the Holy Spirit coming upon him even at, even at that point. And then, then the slide of the temptation of Jesus, uh, by Satan in the, in the wilderness. And then, then this, this slide of the announcement of Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is near, repent, uh, and believe in the gospel. And so we wonder, what does that really mean that the kingdom of God is, is near? And what does it really mean to repent and is to change everything about your, your own heart and, 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 and the way you think and, and the way you feel even, the way you understand life, to repent and believe, to really trust in this good news that Jesus has come. Uh, what's it really mean? Well, we, we see that fleshed out. Uh, this Jesus comes to these men who are fishing at, uh, at the Sea of Galilee. Professional fishermen they were, and, 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 and he calls them to follow him, Jesus does. You know, it's fascinating. Is it, is it Mark doesn't tell us anything about whether there was a prior relationship between Jesus and this, these men, or, or if they knew anything about Jesus, or anything like that. I mean, he just kind of starkly just... Boom, there it is. Jesus calls them. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And then he did the same thing with James and John. And, and, and he just, just scoops them up. Now, this was unusual, first of all, because it wasn't the place in those days of a rabbi to call his students, but rather it was the place of the student to engage the rabbi. And so this had everything turned on its ear. And so Jesus, in a sense, is saying, if you want to be one of mine, I call you. I, I, I initiate. I call you, not the other way around. I'm in charge of this. I have authority over this. So I'm the one who does the calling. I'm the one who... And not only that, you see... What's amazing here is you, you get a sense of the, really the boldness, the audacity of Jesus. To come to these men who are making a living on the Sea of Galilee and simply saying, give all that up, leave all that behind and come and follow me. Who was he to be able to say that? Because you see, this wasn't just an invitation. He was saying, listen, if you can get your affairs in order, if it works out for you, and this goes well for you, and you think this will be a good thing for you, then, then you can come and follow me. He doesn't say that at all. He commands them. He says, just come and follow me. And there's a very real sense, you see, in which they were leaving their very identity behind. Because if identity for us is wrapped up in anything, in the first instance, it's likely to be wrapped up, especially in that culture, in family. 
And he's saying, I want you to leave your family behind. He pulled James and John on the boat with their dad was sitting there. And he left their dad behind. He says, he says I know that, that, that your identity is in the context of your family. But yet still, uh, my call to you is greater than that. You're to be identified with me first and foremost even over your family. This, this family identity is so strong in the days of Jesus. You remember that when Jesus showed up at various places, they would, they would begin to quiz him, like, where are you from? Aren't you from Nazareth? Isn't Mary your mom and Joseph your dad and these your, your siblings? Who are you? And so it was all about identity, family. And Jesus had to give him his real identity, that he was the very son of man, the son of God, sent from heaven and all of that. But, but, but here you see Jesus now, is giving them a new identity. He's saying, you're going to be my disciple. You're going to be a follower of me. You're going to leave this all behind. And not only that, identity with what do you do? Who are you? What do you do? What's your vocation? And he's scooping them up from being fishermen. They were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we have every indication to think that they were pretty good at it. They were making a living at it. And, and here they were. Now he's saying, I want you to leave all that behind. But you see, that's, the authority, the right that Jesus has as the creator of life over life. As our creator over us to, to say, no, come and follow, follow me. You know how Jesus puts it later on. Mark lays it out like this in the Gospel of Mark and chapter 8 and verse uh, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, not deny things to himself, but deny in a sense his identity, his own identity. Let him turn that away, turn that aside, put that aside. Let him deny himself and take up his cross, that meant death, put to death all that behind and Come and follow. Come and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Jesus says, listen, I'm actually bringing you to life, not away from it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? When we said that Jesus came on the scene and said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. And we said, that changed everything. That was the most important thing. This says it as well. If you don't repent and believe, you lose your soul. The gospel of Matthew in chapter 10, Jesus, again, very starkly, very pointedly, Puts it like this, verse 37, Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus isn't saying we oughtn't love our father and mother. He says, he's not saying that we shouldn't love our children. But he's saying, you love me first and foremost. Comparatively, you, you love me first and foremost. Not only that, that you love them because you're being obedient to me and I've commanded you to love them. You're not loving them just because it's your idea, just because you think it's a good thing, just because it's your wisdom, because you want to. You're, you're loving them out of obedience to me because you know that I'm the Lord. I have authority to 
command you. He puts it even more dramatically, at least I think, in Luke, in chapter 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Now again, Jesus wasn't saying hate absolutely, but hate in a comparative kind of way. Compared to the love you have for me, the relationship you have with them is hate. And again, if ever there's a conflict between father and mother, children, even your own life and me, you follow me. And thus, when he came to these disciples, um, Andrew and Peter, James and John, it seems audacious to us, bold to us for him just to compel them to come and follow him, but not really, not if you know who Jesus is. But there's something else here, too. He was calling them to become fishers of men. He was going to make them something, fishers of men. You realize that Jesus has something in his mind that there'll be fish to be caught because Jesus has authority over men. You might remember in Luke chapter 5, there's an incident similar to this where Jesus comes to Peter and he's going to call him to be a fisher of men in that instance there. And, 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 and Peter's been fishing all night and, and hasn't caught anything. And, and Jesus catches him in the morning and... And he says to Peter, let's, let's go back out fishing. And Peter says, I know what I'm doing. This isn't going to work. And Jesus says, no, let's do this. And so they put out again to catch fish. And what happens? They catch a ton of fish, so many fish that the boat's going to sink. And Jesus said, you're going to be fishers of men. So he's going to say to these men and calling them that I have authority over you and I have authority over fish. I have authority over other men. And they're going to come. You're going to catch them. And Jesus was praying in his high priestly prayer, this prayer that he prayed on the night that he was betrayed. It's recorded for us in John chapter 17. He begins like this, verse 1, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so we see Jesus has authority over human beings. Then we go on. He has authority not only over these human beings, over us, over people, but, but he has authority over truth. Uh, he, he comes into the, to the synagogue one Sabbath and begins to teach. Now, again, John's just throwing this slide up there. He's not giving us any background. He doesn't say why Jesus got to teach. It doesn't say that he was invited to teach. It doesn't say that the, the person who was going to teach was sick that day. So Jesus filled in. It doesn't say anything about it. Or he just stood up and started teaching. We don't know because that isn't Mark's point. Mark wants to make another point. He doesn't even tell us what he was teaching about. But he said he taught as one who had authority, had the right to teach. And, and, and the difference was amazing to those people in the synagogue on that day. They had been taught by the scribes. Now, you know, the scribes were good teachers. The scribes had been called to teach. We would say in our context of church, they were, they were called to 
They were ordained to teach. They had been trained to teach. You know, they were the rabbis. They were the teachers. They were the seminary professors, if you will, of the day. And so they were good, should have been, good teachers. That wasn't the point of it. But when Jesus stood up to teach, it would be rather like if Jesus pushed me aside and started teaching. Now, you'd go, wow, that's different. That's different. He has the, he really has the right to say those things. You know, in the word authority, we hear the word author. And as the author of truth, Jesus is the authority of truth. Everybody else who speaks truth speaks as a, on a derived authority from him, from the church, whatever. But, 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 but when Jesus spoke, they said, this is different. He, 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 he doesn't appeal to anybody. He, doesn't, he, he doesn't, doesn't say this one said or that one said. He said, I say. You know, that, that was the difference, you see. They could see it. They could hear it. They knew it. This is truth because he's the author of Truth and when truth came in contact with with evil, the evil recognized the truth. So this demon possessed man was in the synagogue. Now that's always been striking to me. I mean, you'd expect him to find him at the racetrack or you know at the casino, or me at the department store, uh, uh, wherever. But not in the synagogue. I mean, not at church. I mean, I mean, here he was, this man who I don't know if he, how much he knew that this demon was. We don't. Mark doesn't give us any any indication. Doesn't give us any indication that the other people knew that this man was possessed, uh, had this evil, unclean spirit in him. I mean, we don't know any of that. We just because Mark doesn't care to teach us about that at the moment. All he cares about is to teach us about this confrontation. The authority that Jesus has. So when Jesus begins to teach this man with the unclean spirit, the unclean spirit uh, recognizes Jesus and he says, What have you to do with us, uh, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, the demon, this unclean spirit, addressed Jesus in that way. It wasn't by way of introduction. It wasn't a, hi, how are you? Uh, it was a confrontation. It was a battle. He was naming Jesus. And he said, I know who you are. Now, if you have an enemy, you never want them to be able to say that to you exactly. You don't want them to be able to say, I know who you are. Because what they're saying, I know your character, I know your tactics, I know why you're here, I know what you're planning to do. And, and you always, you know, you don't want your enemy to know that. But this knew that, this enemy of Jesus knew all of that. And so when he confronts him, he confronts him with this one, the Holy One of God. In fact, demons, especially in the Gospel of Mark, always do that. You know, if somebody comes to Jesus for healing, they call him Lord or Master or Son of David. But when the demons come before Jesus, they call him the Son of the Most High. They call him the Son of God. They call him the Holy One of God. They know who he is because they know why he's there. And he says, this demon says to Jesus, what have you to do with us? Now, the plural there is interesting. We don't know why the us exactly. Does it more than one demon in a legion of demons like we've had in other occasions? Does he mean sort of all the demons round about? Or what do you have to do with us? Or maybe what do you have to do with all of us here in the synagogue today? Because we're all in trouble before God. Well, whatever he meant by that, he says, I, I know you are the Holy One of God. And what we see here is that Jesus rebukes him, says, be silent and come out. And he does. 
And so he does come out of him. Uh, and, 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 and we, we, we see that. We, we realize that he has authority over evil. And even particularly over these demons. That's important to us, you see. Because we know, according to the first epistle of John, chapter 3, verse 8, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The, the primary work of the devil was in the Garden of Eden. That's where it began, of course. And that's where he captured, the evil one did, the heart of Adam and thus all human beings after him to rebel against God. And you see, Jesus has come now to, to destroy that, to destroy that, to destroy that work. <coughs> Excuse me. And so Jesus has authority over demons. That's good for us to know. And we see it here. He has the right to command them to leave. Now, we know that Jesus will destroy the works of the evil one, destroy the works of the devil by way of the cross. He'll triumph over him. By way of the cross. In Mark's gospel, he makes this note to us in chapter 15. That <clears throat> there is an inscription above the cross. And that was common to do. If, if someone criminal was being crucified, being killed for a crime. That the Romans would take a slate of sorts. And write on it, etch on it in some way. The crime. So, you know, murderer. Right? Something like that. Put above that. Above Jesus was the sign, King of the Jews. That was a political problem for Rome, religious problem for the Jews, so everybody was happy with that. Of course, it was true. It wasn't a crime since he was, in fact, the Son of God. But it was true, you see. But you know what really is written? Above all, above the cross of Jesus. When we were doing that, I thought we should have one of those up there. But now it would be blank. Because you see, what's really, if you can think about it this way with me, what's really written above the cross are your sins and mine. <laughs> and the good news is that Jesus, when he died, wiped them all clean. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes it, he puts it like this, Colossians, somewhere, chapter 2, middle of verse 13, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That record of debt, that was the record of debt with its legal demands. He was the law on one side, he was our sins on the other side. Uh, thus, this he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Basically saying to Satan, you think you've got us because of sin. You think you've got us in this because of our guilt of sin and the power of sin over us. But look what happened. It's gone. The, the guilt of sin is gone. The power of sin is gone. And so we've taken away all your power over those who would believe. And so, so it's important for us to know 
that Jesus has authority over these demons. And then he heals many diseases that come, misery that's caused by sin. So John puts up this, I mean, sorry, Mark puts up this slide that, that, uh, that Jesus is, is healing. He even healed the Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Um, I remember preaching that one day when my mother-in-law was present and uh, was very grateful for the healing of mother-in-laws. But, um, but he heals her and she serves them. He heals then everybody, it seems, who came to him in, from, the, from the city. And then he goes out to preach. But then John puts up this slide and it's a slide that it kind of focuses in on healing. And I think he does that for a particular purpose. It's, it's the healing of one with leprosy. Now, of course, in the days of Jesus, uh, leprosy was a dreaded disease. It had been a dreaded disease throughout history to this point, of course, and still is dreaded, though not as common. Uh, in the Old Testament, there were laws about people with leprosy, these skin infections, and, and uh, it was so contagious and so disfiguring that such folks with such infections were put outside, if you will, Jerusalem, outside the camp, as it's called. And they were also outside of temple worship. And so their lives were separate, ostracized really socially, but also in the context of the religion of Israel. They couldn't worship in the temple. Uh, they, they would dress with torn clothes. Their hair would be disheveled. They would have to wear a cloth uh, over their mouths and, the, and they would have to walk if they, ever, they were seen. They would have to announce that they were unclean. Now that expression, unclean, is an interesting one because it's not simply just, a, uh, just used of disease, but it's, it's really a religious technical term, if you will. It, it means that I'm not able to be in the presence of God unclean. And for some reason, this disease was classified as unclean, as other unclean acts, so that people couldn't worship in the temple. And so you see, when this man comes to Jesus to ask, he doesn't ask to be healed of his disease like the others asked. The blind man would say, heal me of my blindness. The deaf, let me hear. The, uh, the lame, enable me to walk. But the lepers always said, clean me, make me clean. And so it was, it was bigger than just the disease, all oh, the disease was tragic and all of that, but it was bigger than that. It was, it was cleanse me so that I can rejoin, cleanse me so that I can come back in, cleanse me so that I can worship again with the people of God, make me clean so I can be in the presence of God. That was the sense of it, you see. That's why in this particular healing, Jesus would say, you have to go to the priest. It was the priest's job to declare someone clean or unclean from any context of uncleanness. And so, so it was, it was imperative, imperative for this man to be made clean. Fascinating. He comes to Jesus and he says, Will you? Will you? You get a sense of his faith because he came to Jesus. And it wasn't so much that he didn't think Jesus had the power, but would he? Did he have the heart to? Did he have the right to? And then we read what I find always in Scripture, what I call a giveaway word. You know, um, if you're watching a basketball game, a basketball player can telegraph his pass and give it away. A pitcher can, can tip his pitches and the gospel writers tip what's about to come because they say had pity on him or compassion. 
And anytime we read this about Jesus, he had pity or compassion, you know he's going to do something. He has to. He has to act. That's the sense of it, you see. It's the very heart of God to see the need and, and act. And he says, oh, I will. I will. And then he says, be clean. And the man is, is cleansed. See, Jesus has the authority not simply to heal diseases, but to cleanse. To restore us to the worship of God. To restore us to the presence of God. To restore us to the people of God. And so it's no surprise then. The next incident that Mark throws up at us on another slide is this very dramatic healing of Jesus. We all know it. We colored this when we were kids in in coloring books. And and our kids do this as well they should because it's a very dramatic scene. And it's this great scene of, of these men whose friend is paralyzed and, and they take their friend to Jesus and they can't get in because there's so many people crowding even in front of the door. And so they, 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 uh, they, they drill a hole or make a hole in the roof in some way and they lower him down. I don't know if I've thought of this so many times that I feel like I was there. You know, it's one of those things where you see the snapshot and you remember that, you know, oh, I remember that. But, but you see it, and you, you, I was there, must have been there. I've thought about it so many times. And what's fascinating, again, is that, that Jesus doesn't do what you expect, at least what I expect. I don't think what his friends expected. Jesus, I think the friends expected Jesus to see the man and said, get up and walk. And he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And if I'm the, even the guy, I'm thinking, thanks, but I think you missed The obvious, I can't walk and I want to. You know, thanks for the forgiveness, but I really want to walk. And and, and in fact, everybody around were marveling at what Jesus said, not because he didn't heal him right away, but because they recognized something about Jesus' authority. That he had assumed the authority, the right, that he could actually forgive sins. And that was amazing to all of them because, because how could a person do that? You know, if I sin against you, someone else can't forgive me for you. You have to do it. Someone sins against God. Someone else can't forgive them. Only God can. And so, here they were with Jesus and this man, and he said, your sins are forgiven. They got exactly what he was doing. He said, God has forgiven your sins. And they said, how could he do that? Only God can do that. And I don't know, but I think every time a statement like that was made about Jesus, that it just kind of hung in the air. And everybody went, oh. Because we know how Jesus can forgive so that we can be cleansed is by way of his dealing with the evil one and sin upon the cross. Because he's done all of that, then, of course, he has the right to call us to follow him. And so the big question is, why wouldn't we? I mean, he does all of this uh, so that we would know that he has the right 
the authority to do this. But, but you know, this, this, this right and this authority is such as the very Son of God that, that he has the right to save us. He has the right to restore us to God. He has the right to give us eternal life. And so you see, as we read about these events in the life of Jesus, as the kingdom of God is near and as it's expressed, as we see it become visible before us, the very rule of God, the point is Jesus calling and saying, trust me, trust me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Trust me. Take my yoke upon you and, and learn of me for I'm, I'm humble, I'm gentle. Trust me. Come to me, trust me. And you say, but, but, but I need that healing now. And Jesus said, well, I, I know. I need this now. I, I know. But trust me. I've come. I have the right. I have the authority. Wait. Trust me. The night that he was betrayed. The night that he would do battle with the enemy. He took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Trust me. I'm going to defeat the evil one. Trust me. I'm going to free you. Trust me. In the same way, he took the cup and again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Trust me. I will cleanse you. Trust me, when I die, my blood will be splattered on that slate that's above your head and it will wash every accusation away. So that you're free from sin's guilt and power. Trust me. Nobody else has that kind of right. Nobody else has that kind of authority. Nobody else can do that. Nobody else can say that. Nobody else can pronounce that. Except this very one, Jesus. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that we would indeed trust knowing that he has the very right to command our lives. But when he does, he commands us to good places. He's the very, live, very right to protect us from evil, the authority over evil, so that when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He has the authority and the power to do that. He has the right to cleanse us and restore us to fellowship with you. He has the right to forgive sins. Father, I pray for me, for us, that we would believe even as we've repented. And so, Father, as we come to this table, I pray that... This would be an expression of faith, yes, but more importantly, that this would be 
a time for you to meet with us and to sweetly and humbly minister to our our hearts. That call we've been wrestling with to follow you. To put this and that aside to follow you. The wickedness that is in the world around us and invades our space and we know it and this would be a time that we would have great assurance that you have authority over even all that is wicked in the world. And maybe it's a sense of our own sin, Father, that we're troubled by it and we desire to have real assurance of cleansing. Assure us that Jesus has the right to cleanse and restore, to forgive us. So, Father, I pray you would take this bread and this juice and set it aside in such a way that we would know we're in the very presence of Jesus. And this I pray in Jesus' name.